Funambulis Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, spreading the decolonial spirit of Bandung from Tunisia to Turtle Island with Nadia Benissa. everyone. Today my guest is uh, Nadia Ben Youssef, uh, who is a human rights lawyer and the advocacy director at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, as well as the co-founder of the Adela Justice Project, a US-based Palestinian advocacy organization that works to transform American discourse and policy on Palestine-Israel. Um, and uh, we are recording this conversation in Melbourne, which is neither of our turf, <laughs> uh, but uh, we're here at the, at the Black and Palestinian Solidarity Conference. Uh, hello, Nadia. Hi, Leopold. Uh, uh, thank you very much for taking a little bit of time to, to talk with me today. Uh, and um, after we both uh, had our small presentation mm -hmm. at this conference, <laughs> perhaps let's start with that. Like, wh sure. what, do, what, are, what are your impressions of this uh, Black Palestinian uh, conference, which I, I guess maybe for our listeners, uh, some of them, uh, we, might, we, might need to, we might need to say that uh, Black, obviously, in the context of Melbourne and Australia, is, uh, is, uh, relates to the Aboriginal indigenous population of the continent. Um, yeah, what are what are your impressions so far? Wow, yeah, I mean, it's a it's an honor to be here. Um, it's an honor to be here to be in community and to be enlarging our community. What I, I think I've been struck by that throughout my life and career that our community is so big, honestly, and a community defined as those with whom we struggle for justice. And you look up and you're surrounded by freedom fighters and um, warriors, as we've heard a lot of. Um, and so it's, it, it's humbling and it's inspiring to be uh, among uh, this group of people. It has been said a number of times, it's a historic conference and convening. Um, and as someone who is not Palestinian, not um, Aboriginal, but comes to this work in solidarity, and it, it's it's really an extraordinary experience to be, yeah, to be learning and um, exchanging strategies of resistance and histories of struggle and and actually very clear visions of liberation, which which feels really, it feels really good. <laughs> How about you? How are you feeling? Yeah, no, same thing. I, mean, <laughs> I obviously share the same non-Palestinian and non-Aboriginal uh, non, uh, status, and was very honored to be part of uh, part of this. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, my little stone to the building was uh, was uh, useful somehow. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, I mean, your you, your presentation was. Uh, Blown everybody away, so that, <laughs> so I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of have you almost uh, repeat it, but through maybe a little bit of chaptering through my questions. Uh, sure. uh, but so you started with something that uh, we maybe uh, in those kind of conversation we tend to hear a lot about it, which is the 1955 uh, Bandung Conference of uh, non-aligned uh, country and countries and. Uh, 
uh, sort of creation of the third world liberation um, uh, mm. coalitions. Uh, but you, you, on the contrary of what of many accounts on Bandung, you you did it through the through a very personal and I, I would say extremely beautiful and inspiring mm. and powerful uh, accounts through the, the 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 person of your grandfather. And uh, I wanted uh, I wanted to ask you to perhaps uh, tell tell it again for our listeners. Mm, thank you, Leopold. It was. Um Yeah, it was a, it was quite an experience to tell this story, actually. And um, as someone who spends a lot of time doing public education and advocacy around systems and structures of oppression, institutions like the law, as a trained as a lawyer, and in some ways a bit distant from, even though it's the it's these structures that we feel in our lives, it um, telling this personal story has a totally different dimension to it. So I was I was really proud to be able to tell tell this particular story about my grandfather. So um, my grandfather, Saleh bin Youssef, a revolutionary and freedom fighter in the anti-colonial struggle against France um, in Tunisia, and he was the head of the North African delegation to Bandung. And so Bandung is known mostly for the 29 countries that were newly independent and gathered together on their own terms to speak against empire and colonialism, um, and um, show and, and embody the power of the third world. But it was also, there were representatives of, of still colonized places um, that were there to appeal to their brothers and sisters in struggle and say, we, we turn to you, not to anyone else, like we're turning to you to uplift our struggle for freedom, you who have succeeded in upending empire, um, rather than pleading for our humanity from the colonizers, we're coming to you. Um, and it's such a, so I, I really, I love that, and I was saying it in the, in the talk, like it, these representatives for me um, have such a story to tell about the strength of that movement, the irresistible nature of those forces that said, together we are the multitude and we have something to say about our condition and about the condition of the world we are trying to create, a world that we have not yet seen, but we know is possible. Um, and so my grandfather was the head of the North African delegation representing Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco um, at Bandung and had been spending the last, you know, five or so years of his um, work representing Tunis the Tunisian independence movement as part of the neo Dassur party um, throughout the third world and going to Indonesia and the Philippines and India and um, speaking and garnering third world support for the Tunisian liberation struggle. And so he was there as a representative and there were so many interesting and powerful moments in Bandung that... I think exemplify again kind of the ambitions of the that that conference, the power of what what's called the Bandung spirit, and why that's such a beautiful moment of um, clarity for the third world, and also a really clear moment of choice um, in the anti-colonial struggle. And so, what happened in Bandung, and it's a family tale, but it it really feels like it has. 
Um, it's pretty huge consequences. Yeah, <laughs> it really does because what, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, one, um, these, this trio, you know, the Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia in 1954 had signed in Cairo Accords saying we're going to demand independence together. Like it is all of us or none of us in a, a really powerful statement of solidarity and beyond a statement, right, a praxis, we are, we are committed to each other's freedom. And so, you know, you have this grouping that's going to represent a common cause and their opening statement to Bandung. So we, I did a bit of archival research um, and something that we can talk about too that really only became possible to me after the Tunisian Revolution mm. like to really dive after into our family. Of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah to dive into this history. Perhaps just to, yeah, to give a please. little bit of element of contextualization, of because we, we, we obviously all know about the Algerian Revolution, because it lasted for eight years, killed uh, half a million people, displaced two million people, like half of the rural population of Algeria, uh, and was, um, uh, and was uh, really a, a very, very demanding uh, revolution. But Back in '55, when the revolution had just started, and Morocco and Tunisia had been had been fighting for a few years, uh, I mean, obviously, had been fighting for many years, but mm -hmm. in, a, in an even more intense way. And I remember finding, like, a, a, I think maybe a December 1954, so two months in the, the Algerian Revolution, a French newspaper saying. We're really hoping that the situation in Algeria does not become as bad as in Morocco and Tunisia. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, 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 retrospectively, it seems like the Algerian Revolution was obviously oh, wow. the, the, a very intense moment of of, of anti-colonial resistance. But to put us back all in the context of 1955, which I think as, as, uh, is very important in what you're about to describe, uh, the three the three were very were very much. Uh, uh, Intensely involved in this in Absolutely. this resistance, yeah. and and engaged with each other. Yeah, and um, there's really extraordinary. I mean, this is beyond the talk, but really extraordinary strategic work mm. that was happening um, in, particularly in militant uprisings of of distracting the colonizer, mm. where we needed to alleviate pressure from Algeria, and so there were uprisings that were staged in Tunisia and vice versa. You know, how did it's a very interesting. Mm. Um, and, and sophisticated uh, resistance and insurgency. But this particular moment in, and it's an amazing thing that you said, but in, by the time you get to Bandung, there's at least third world consensus about Tunisia and Morocco saying, okay, like these two, we've accepted and uplifted your freedom struggles and uh, lend our support. And so this press release that the that the um, delegation wrote s thanked the third world for the support of Tunisia and Morocco and demanded that that same solidarity be applied to Algeria, which was beginning its armed resistance. And so there was a sense that the Algerians at the moment needed the support and and the Moroccans and Tunisians were willing to step back and it's such a beautiful moment of solidarity, right? Like what do you, when you leverage your power and your privilege for another mm. that needs that platform? And so it's a really amazing uh, press release just saying essentially like we hope that you adhere to the aspirations of this convening, which is that decolonization has to happen everywhere. 
and by any means, really. And so it's an amazing moment. So solidarity, I think, was powerful. Another beautiful moment of solidarity is that um, in Richard Wright's retelling of Bandung um, in his book, The Color Curtain, Richard Wright, a black um, novelist and public intellectual and thinker who went to Bandung to, to record it, he saw a newspaper clipping about Bandung and he was like, I have to go absolutely to this gathering. And he traces this in a, a really interesting travel log called The Color Curtain. And he describes the moment that the delegation with my grandfather boarded the plane in Cairo. So he talks, you know, he wakes up um, his long journey in Cairo and these French-speaking North Africans board the plane and are talking wildly and he hears them discussing Palestine. And um, for me, that's another beautiful moment of, of solidarity that the North Africans were so concerned with how to bring Palestine into Bandung and the question of Palestinians and uh, the support of Palestine, which ended up in the final um, communique of the Bandung conference in a really important way. So solidarity, key. Um, and the, this particular, um, I think, revelatory moment in the anti-colonial struggle happened because when all of these leftist revolutionaries were in Bandung creating and um, devising this manifesto against empire, there was a very different strategy being undertaken independently and unilaterally in Paris between Habib Bourguiba, who uh, was also part, was also head of the Neo Destour party, and at one point a political comrade of my grandfather's. They were in prison together. They had organized together, um, developed the party together. My grandfather was the secretary general of the Neo Destour party and um, minister of justice, and they were they were building together. But Habib Bourguiba had a very different approach to an independent struggle, and at the same time that. Everyone was in Bandung. Habib Bourguiba signed internal aut autonomy accords with France. Uh, and these accords essentially um, agreed to a limited self-rule, limited self-government. France would maintain economic and foreign policy control. Would uh, French settlers would retain their right to property. Um, a very incremental... Um, What's the withdrawal? Withdrawal, incremental withdrawal, and an incremental um, transfer of power to Tunisians at the time that um, benefited the colonizer. Mm. So, so it was in the colonizer. Some troops also stayed. Would for remain. A few years. Yeah. Um, the courts would remain in control. The French colonizers would have access to the to their own courts. It was a really. Um, a very calculated move on the part of the colonizer about how they wanted to offer uh, the colonized their freedom, which we know never happens. Frederick Douglass says, power concedes nothing without a demand. The powerful will never give um, freedom. It has to be taken. It has to be and taken fully. So this happened in April 21, 1955. The Bandung Conference is April 18 to April 24, 20, so one week. So a few days before the end of the conference, this is happening in Paris. And my grandfather receives a telegram in Bandung 
saying that this had happened, a violation of the accords that Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco had signed in, in uh, Cairo in 1954, a betrayal of an independence movement that was seeking for complete um, social and political transformation, economic control, that had a vision of liberation that was total, that was complete, and that was collective, critically, across Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, that it would be all of us. And so the one piece of writing that, I, that we have as a family in English of my grandfather is this press statement, like the, the press statement that was written in response to the telegram that he received saying that this had happened in Paris. And it's such a, it's such, you can feel the devastation in, in the words, just like how, how dare you? betray the Tunisian people and the Algerian revolution in this critical moment. And he says, like, he's, you can feel it, right? Like, this is in this historic context where we just have unanimous support of the third world. So um, the, the Bandung, you know, final communique that says we support Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, they said they did exactly what they had set out to do. They said full self-determination for these people and we commend your right to freedom and... Um, and decolonization around the world. And so this had just happened. And so the deep sadness um, that he must have felt at the time, and he's writing this statement, just saying that the Tunisian people will never accept a fake autonomy and a fake independence, um, particularly in the historic moment where the whole world is struggling against colonialism and, and imagining something far greater than what you the crumbs that you accepted on our behalf, on whose behalf, right? So it's just a, it's a powerful moment and that really is clarifying, I think, for the two paths forward out of colonialism. Um, sadly, the one that was both chosen and imposed. I think the colonizer and the empire had control over the kind of piecemeal independence that it was willing to offer Tunisia, knew that it needed to put certain people in power, um, we talked about the bourgeoisie of, of France Fanon that he anticipated um, in The Wretched of the Earth, knew the that this is... The colonized bourgeoisie. Voilà, yeah. c'est ça, yeah. that this, like, we're, we know it's going to happen. Mm. And, and we can control that as the empire, and so that's what we're putting in place, and all of these revolutionaries, I mean, what you see over time is that uh, they're all deposed, assassinated, overturned. You know, you see the spirit of Bandung was so threatening, was so threatening to empire, and it didn't have the control that it wanted. So the two paths forward were a liberal internationalism that allowed for colonial, the colonial apparatus to maintain its structure and maintain its power in these, uh, despite independence on paper, right? Um, or the transformation of a world order that was, that was pursued and that was imagined in Bandung. Mm. And perhaps it's important for everybody to to understand that it happened in every single uh, country that France France had colonized on the African continent. Yes. That such an independence was actually a sort of negotiation with neo-colonial logics, uh, including in Algeria. Actually, I mean, mm -hmm. mostly mostly in in West Africa, where still today there is something that. Um, uh, Pan-African activist called France Afrique as a, mm. as a 
still a very, very high dependency on, on uh, manufacturer dependency on France, both in terms of who gets to govern and uh, how there's still some economic uh, uh, very high uh, dependency. Um, to Algeria that had uh, France uh, leaving, a few uh, leaving some troops as well as continuing its nuclear testing for four years after the, mm. the end of the, uh, for, for, four years after the end of the Algerian Revolution. Uh, to the Comoros where Mayotte, uh, one of the islands of the archipelago, remains under French sovereignty today. Uh, the, uh, to uh, Burkina Faso, where uh, Thomas Sankara was uh, was uh, assassinated after after contesting such neocolonial logic, uh, Cameroon, where where the, the the true revolutionary movement was uh, uh, suppressed with incredible violence by the new independent uh, the new independent uh, nation states that uh, was. Uh, heavily helped by France to do so. The only example I know that, and I don't know it very in detail, so unfortunately, but the only example I know of a country that escaped to this is Guinea. Mm. But Guinea, in doing so, in, in saying, <laughs> fuck you, we, we're, we yeah. want our independence, plain and simple, 100%, um, had uh, literally, after issuing such a statement, like a week later, was independent and was the subject of a very intense economic war by voilà. France that, uh, that, that let, left the country in, in great uh, direness and, and precariousness. So, so I think something needs to be understood as well in how uh, in many of those cases, and Cameroon in particular, because Cameroon was a UN mandate following the, 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 the end of the First World War, uh, it was actually sometimes more advantageous for France to have such neocolonial agreements than the actual colony to... Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's a powerful statement to say, and I think that's... I think people would absolutely agree, given, given where the countries are um, and how global economic structures have paralyzed progress and created and an inequality and an inequity that is of colonial times. Like without fundamentally uprooting these structures and systems, the status quo remains. A status quo of colonial hierarchy, human hierarchy, um, and and that's a that's a devastating thing. And so what we're at now well, I, may I actually, I'll, I'll just touch on the kind of the personal implications of, of, of that repression um, and what the silencing has meant for the, I mean, you know, the attempt to silence the Bandung spirit and um, ideals of revolution. And my, when my grandfather returned to Tunisia in the fall of 1955 and began um, organizing militant uprisings against these accords and this internal autonomy and um, was determined that this would not be um, the legacy of the anti-colonial movement in Tunisia. Um, that he was ultimately ousted from the party in 1955 um, in a pretty dramatic way and then fled um, for his life and was we were exiled in Egypt and um, which is where my dad grew up, exiled in Egypt, and my grandfather continued from Egypt. And um, obviously, Abdel Nasser was was welcoming revolutionaries at the time, and they had been together in Bandung and organizing. And 
Um, and he continued to speak out and to attack these accords. And you and watched it. Watch the first. Uh, can you imagine, like, watching five years into a neo-colonial reality in Tunisia, um, and sort of the up, the propping up of the first dictator. What, what would become a dictator? They were just watching that happen and being like, "What is this? What is this that we fought for?" So he continued to fight against. Um, and to, you know, to challenge those those accords, and um, it remains such a threat to um, this fragile neo-colonial reality that Habib Bourguiba was um, creating in in Tunisia. And ultimately, in 1961, uh, Bourguiba ordered the assassination of my grandfather when he was in uh, Frankfurt, and he was killed in Germany in August uh, 12th of 1961. My father was 10 at the time, and, um, and it remains such a mythological story for me for, for much of my life. Like this, this a very dramatic um, murder. He was lured into a place by people that he knew uh, in, in this hotel room in Germany. My grandmother found him. My, my father and my uncle were at a a camp in the Black Forest, and um, during most, just very recently, and it's a story that I that will turn hopeful soon. But in the just very recently, my father described what what that was like to see his mother come to the camp without his father, just days after they'd left them there, so early on, and in the camp, and um, take them away in this like dark car, and my grandmother looking so sick and so they didn't understand what was going on and and the story of being of of revelation of what had happened to a 10 year old and it was um it's pretty it's it's a it's a story that yeah i mean you you inherit these these experiences and these traumas and as much as we inherit the the spirit of resistance and the legacy of um of these revolutionary ideals and um just recently Sorry for the. <laughs> the just recently, um, the story I was saying, you know, as I gave the the presentation a couple of days ago, often the story and for our family ended there. Um, that I knew the the date of the assassination of my grandfather um, for most of my life without knowing his birthday. Like I didn't. That it was just that was the totality of the story, and um, but then. After the revolution, the, there was this Truth and Dignity Commission that was established to investigate the crimes of the regimes. And um, in March, the, that commission released a report, and they had done an investigation into the assassination of my grandfather and charged six people, including Habib Bourguiba, with his murder. And May 16th of this year, there was the first hearing before the Transitional Justice Court and five Tunisian judges um, gathered and the courtroom was packed with people and my father was able to give a testimony of um, and to tell his story, to tell our story. And we both traveled kind of urgently to Tunisia not knowing that it was about to happen and I we stayed up late and my father was writing this testimony and he stopped himself at some point 
um, because he was, he was documenting, he was trying to tell the story of the assassination and, and about the murder, and then he stopped himself and he was like, but that's, that's one, it's documented, and that's actually not the, the story is, the story is about what you can never kill. Hmm. The story is what survives. And one, it's the ideals that um, Salah ibn Yusuf represented and that the Third World Movement was um, putting forward. It's, it's that, and it's that fundamental choice of like, do we pursue total social, political, economic transformation, or do we accept incremental reforms? Do we believe in democratizing settler societies? Do we believe in benevolent occupations, making jails more livable? Or do we imagine a world beyond borders, a world without cages? Like, what are this choice that Tunisia has, that, that we have as a society? And so he focused on, on that, like, that this is what this person stood for. This is what my father stood for. And he said it a number of times, and I think it was such a cathartic experience to say, Habib Bourguiba killed my father. And I'm telling you, Tunisian judges, Habib Bourguiba is, is no longer, there's of the six people that were charged, one remains. But it wasn't, it's not about vindictive, like, prosecution. It's about recovering history, because in recovering history, you recover the choice that we made um, and that we can make again. Like, we have another opportunity to make that choice. And I think the, what I, you know, the way that I describe the lecture is, is that Bandung spirit being very present in, in modern movements for justice that are linking transnationally across borders in solidarity and in struggle, continuing that legacy. Um, and demanding a fundamentally different world. And it's, 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 it's so exciting, it's so inspiring. And I think that's, I hope, I mean, in, this, in these tragedies and in these stories is also just the, the possibility of, of what I kept saying is, is an irresistible future. And our capacity um, and responsibility to create that. And so you're seeing these opportunities. This conference is one of them. Um, and every moment that we show up for each other's struggles is, is a moment where we are reclaiming our capacity to imagine something totally different. Well, wonderful. Perhaps as a, as a very last chapter, um, uh, I think you, you also brought this uh, Bandung spirit uh, to, your, to your present uh, in, uh, in Turtle Island in the, in the, in the US. Uh, um, and uh, citing uh, in particular a movement for, for Black Lives and other yes. another movement, could we could we perhaps also totally. uh, have uh, a conclusion of the sort from you? Yeah, my gosh. I my grandfather became alive for me in the most real way on the streets of Ferguson. I, I met, I would say I met my grandfather in Palestine. And in fact, the first time I was referred to spontaneously as his granddaughter was by an old Palestinian man in the Nakab in the south of Palestine. He said, Ben Yusuf. And he said, I know you and I know your grandfather. And had heard him speak. So I met my grandfather in Palestine. He, he came alive for me in Ferguson. Um, 
and the, the movement for black lives and this resurgence of an internationalist um, perspective and demand um, from organizers who particularly at the intersection of black Palestinian solidarity in the United States, but, but beyond as it touches, um, as it touches, again, this concept of an, an ever-growing community where we're like, our, our struggles are interconnected. And what has happened since 2014 in the United States is this, again, deepening connection of struggles for justice that's built on slow and deliberate relationships um, across struggles. So people are fundamentally disengaging from, say, corridors of power, traditional corridors of power, to, it's no longer, it's, it's a, fundamental rejection of this idea that you have to demand your rights from the powerful, quote unquote, the powerful, right? Like that we each struggle kind of by itself and in silos was um, appealing to the empire. And in this moment, in the last five, six, decade, maybe you can say like, Though as we're hearing these stories, this is not new. It's it just felt like it felt like a resurgence and a and a recommitment to this idea, was that the people would stop appealing to the powerful and just turn towards each other, and say like I see you in my struggle and your struggle is my own and we are etched onto each other, like what happens in Palestine affects me and I understand my own condition by learning about. Palestine or vice versa. Um, we were organizing, you know, suddenly we, were, we stopped organizing delegations to DC or to New York, to the UN or to Congress, and we were instead going to St. Louis and we were going to Baltimore and we were going to New Orleans and Baton Rouge and Montgomery, Alabama. And, and it was this fundamental, and New Mexico where we met and were hosted by the Red Nation and Nick Estes and Melanie Yazzie and these freedom fighters. Hi. Hey. <laughs> who were similarly saying, like, this is one struggle. This is one struggle to completely transform our world. And when we recognize that we are, we are the multitude um, and we commit to each other, this, like, house of cards disappears. It can do nothing but, but kind of change its orientation to one of like, it has to coexist with the rest of us. Like we are done appealing to, we're done appealing to you and we are committed to holding on to each other. And um, this has been the most hopeful experience of my life. I think the silos that we operate in is designed by the empire, right? We are fragmented and we are siloed and we kind of play, we have to, we play into that because we're in emergency mode and we're fighting with our heads down and um, it's exhausting. And you are constantly on your back foot resisting the world that's coming at you hard um, and seemingly alone. You seem alone in your struggle and it's exhausting and you find yourself asking for crumbs. It's really, 
it's, it's a replication of, of history always, right? And then the alternative is you look around and it is immense our power and immense our strength because we can learn from each other, we can resist together and we can, we can show up and show our strength in ways that are impossible to do alone. And so it is, it's immensely hopeful. And I think our, our task now is to put as much of our, as much as we can, right, the intellectual labor of our community, our collective community, to articulate our demands, like affirmatively put forward our vision of the world that we want. Um, the alternative is very clear. The empire is very clear. Authoritarian, racist, xenophobic, fascist regimes that are all over the world are very clear about the world that they, they want. And we are very this good. <laughs> What's that? They want this one. They want the exact this one. They want the status quo. Mm. This works perfectly for them. And we are very good at saying no. That's like definitely not what we want. Um, we're, less, we're less ready in part by design. I think our imaginations are atrophied because we're in a process of constant resistance. Um, but we must affirmatively put forward the vision of the world that we want and that we're fighting for and that we, um, that we demand that is our inheritance from these revolutionaries and freedom fighters who have come before us and the revolutionaries and freedom fighters that are coming after us. Um, and it's time, and I feel very strongly, particularly after this conference, and maybe you feel the same, Leopold, like we have everything we need. We have everything we need to not only articulate that world, but to build it. And I think these opportunities are, you know, the constant affirmation that we need to remind ourselves that we are enough, that we have everything that we need, and to bring us in relationship with each other in deep and meaningful ways so that we, we build that world together. And I, I think we're winning. I think we will win, as devastating as it feels now. Like, we will win. Um, the empire is trembling, and so now is the time to push. Well, wonderful. <laughs> and uh, as we pay respect to, your, to the memory of your grandfather, mm. uh, I think we can also continue doing what we've been doing those last three years, which is to pay respect to the, the people who fought for uh, sovereignty over the land we are on right now in mm. Australia. Mm. Uh, thank you so much, Nadia. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank Thanks. you, Leopold.